0: Do we see you at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Beuzeau, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture. Investing as if the planet mattered podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits, and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to, for sure, a wide-ranging interview with friend of the show back after a while. I think it was probably the beginning of the year, the end of last year. I'm so happy to have him back here. He's the chief innovation officer at Howgood, but so much more, including a farmer, obviously applying regenerative practices. Welcome back, Ethan Soloviev.
1: Thank you, Kim. Great to be here.
0: So we have a lot of things to get through, and I know you have a hard stop, so we're going to start immediately. Let's start with some news, as we've done a number of news episodes last year, and there is actually a lot of news. This is not going to be a full news episode. We're going to talk about how good, what you've launched, and everything that's happening there. But let's get a few, let's say, big headlines. We're talking the 16th of November 2020. What's on your mind in terms of Regen Ag or Regen business in general?
1: Regeneration is moving very quickly. Now, I think we have been in an exponential growth curve for quite some time. And wow, can we see it, especially in the last few months? There's been some major announcements by really large companies. Cargo, you know, one of the big four commodity agricultural companies in the world, announced that they were going to 10x what General Mills had said a few years before, and they said we're putting 10 million acres into regenerative agriculture, or I think they use a similar language of we're going to advance regenerative agriculture. 10 million acres. That's pretty significant. Almost at the same time, might even have been the same week. Walmart announced that it was going to be a regenerative company. They didn't even say regenerative agriculture. They just said, we're going to be a regenerative company. And that was surprising, shocking, even hard to believe. Certainly. Especially I think because they were not following the trend that had been happening. So it was like there's this linear thing and we'll see it later this year when we update our regenerative agriculture industry map.
0: I was gonna ask you about it. So there's gonna be an update, which is Yes, great.
1: absolutely. There's been a growth in the number of companies saying regenerative ag, regenerative ag, regenerative ag. But then this is almost like a mycelial thing, went sideways and went over there. And we saw little clues of it from the Forum for the Future did their regenerative agriculture report funded by the Walmart Foundation earlier in the year. So there's a little like sense of it. But then all of a sudden, Walmart comes out and says, we're going to be a regenerative company. And what they talked about with that was a good bit of ecological stuff. They said, we plan to be net zero. We're going to conserve this many millions of acres, But they didn't actually say much about regeneration, certainly not from the deep regenerative business perspective that has also been growing very quickly. And so uh, I'm very fascinated to see if they can pull it off. My hunch is they won't be able to because they haven't really seen any signs except for a little bit from the CEO that they can think regeneratively. But it is a clear sign of the growth of the buzzword.
0: Yeah, uh, we're in the hype cycle, definitely climbing up the hype mountain at the moment.
1: Absolutely. And whether or not Walmart does regenerative agriculture or figures out how to become regenerative, which I hope they do, but I think they have a long way to go on the business side to do that. That was a major signal to all of their suppliers and to all of the major companies.
0: That if you have ingredients, if you have brands that are using ingredients that have been grown using 1 to 20 regenerative practices, You can knock on a door and say, hey, look, guys and girls, we have something. You should be selling this because...
1: And even beyond that, like the general customer awareness that regenerative, what is... I don't even know what that word means. Now Walmart's saying it. So many CEOs are now thinking, wow, what is that? So I think one of the things that means is that any interest that we've seen so far in our work on regenerative agriculture, on regenerative business, on decision-making, on supply chains any work you've done on investing in regenerative agriculture there is a big wave of interest coming in our direction and i don't know maybe you've experienced a bit of this yourself
0: no absolutely i think the podcast was already i mean the community and the podcast was already on let's say the way up in terms of just sheer amount of downloads sheer amount of inbound emails people reaching out people calling into the webinars we're doing asking anything the people on linkedin etc but definitely covid and the focus on food and the focus on environment, especially in our let's say extended bubble, has helped. That like every interview we've published so far has, has been doing better than the one before, and also the ones going back actually are are still gaining quite a lot of listeners. And it's really compared to a year ago, it's it's a huge huge growth in sheer number of interactions, number of listeners, number of people reaching out, and number of not just the number of people, also the kind of people, like really experienced finance people reaching out, like I want to set up a fund or I want to invest in this and this. And I've listened to a lot of the episodes. And what do you think about that and that? So there's a lot happening that you maybe don't see on the podcast, like on the public podcast one, because we publish max one a week. But there's a lot happening on the background as well. And there's a lot of interactions happening and and investments are happening. There are people using the podcast as deal flow, a deal flow source, because it turns out it's a great way... Not to do due diligence necessarily, but to build trust. Like if you spend an hour, an hour and a half with me and a guest, you have a good understanding if you find that guest and the company interesting or not. And then you can reach out and people do it. Like investors reach out. I know family offices and private investors that reach out either through me and I'm always happy to introduce, but also directly. And, and that's why we do it. like To make money flow to the people that are building things to regenerate soil at scale and, and oceans. Let's not forget so it's definitely, I feel that where the wave is catching up, like we're on the surfboard and you feel that you're going up, although you cannot see it because everything else is going up as well, but <laughs> it's starting to bubble a lot faster and more vividly than it has done. I mean, since I started following the space in 2011.
1: It's very exciting. It's very exciting. And I think, I, I mean, it makes me wonder if the, like, if the actual entrepreneurs generating deals, generating projects, investable opportunities, if that will even grow as fast as the demand grows.
0: No, I think it's, you're right. I think there's a shortage of, I think the money part is exploding. Like a lot of people trying to get in and we can talk about if they're investing in a regenerative way. I mean, many of course are looking for the typical return, the typical speed, the typical time horizon, et cetera. And And I hope people learn or see that that's not the case here. Like this, we're talking about real economy. We're talking about nature. We're talking about a lot of things that take a longer time or different time horizons. But I think what we're not missing, but what we absolutely need more of is people building things in the space. And by things, I mean, entrepreneurial farmers, I mean, funds, investment vehicles, companies, food companies, technology, everything else that we need for this revolution it's going to require companies to build things, and we definitely need more of that because there's going to be a lot of money trying to get into the space and we need places to put it
1: it's almost kind of like maybe we should start a like a venture studio or something that actually you know we can see it very clearly from both of our perspectives, and we should just start building the companies and uh, maybe raise a fund to do that that would be fun that
0: would be fun we're let's say in the background we're, we're playing with a few things. I know a few people that are on the Venture Studio model and trying to bring it to region, egg and food. Shout out to the ones that are listening and know that I'm talking about you. Uh, hopefully an interview soon. That's definitely an invite. And it's, yeah, we, we need a lot of people that have experience. I was discussing it this morning with a very successful entrepreneur that turned his attention and uh, of his team to food and egg. And we need very experienced people that are experienced too, that have built stuff, that have gathered teams, that have raised potentially money, or at least have built companies, could be big, could be small, that have experience in building things. We need them desperately in the region, I like food space because we're going to need, we're running out of time and soil. So we're going to need people that, that have experience in building larger organizations, could be NGOs as well, but we need people that have built organisms that can make this change happen. So I'm inviting anybody to reach out if you're building such things. And because there's... There is money in the space. There's going to be a lot more if the wave is correct. Not all of it is going to be applicable and relevant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it definitely is a very interesting moment for the sector, honestly.
1: Just picking up on something you said before about money looking at regenerative things, but maybe not doing it in a regenerative way. I thought I would also just call out a small paper I published last month that was on this exact topic of not just what do you invest in, but how do you invest and what's the deeper why that motivates how you invest on four different levels from a more sort of extract value to a do less harm to a, I want to do a bit of good to an actually regenerative way of investing. And so that paper is called Food System Investing in a Regenerative Economy. And it's part of this larger collaborative that I imagine your listeners will be really interested in, which is called the Regenerative Economy Collaborative. And is a community of practice that is writing on the concept of a regenerative economy from a regenerative paradigm. So not just taking an older perspective of finance and saying, well, let's look at regeneration and write about it, but actually a group of people who have been in some people for 40 years thinking and working in a regenerative way and saying, okay, what if we apply this way of thinking to the economy? And so there's been some really cool you know, foundational articles on what it means to be an economic shaper looking at uh, modern portfolio theory, modern financial theory of, around regeneration. So there's a bunch of cool articles of which the one I wrote is just a small piece on these different levels of investing.
0: I really like the article. We'll link it below in the in the show notes on the website where you can find the show notes. I think it's a crucial point because we cannot apply, I, I, quote unquote, traditional investing. This is not so traditional. It's relatively recent. But let's say the model we've been, even the funds we've been using to invest in software companies i mean it's i think it's ridiculous to imagine that that would work in food companies that make food as medicine like it's a completely different set of variables and then if you apply regenerative thinking to it you really go four five six steps further and i think we it's a continuum in a sense that we have definitely a number of investors that really really think deeply about it but a big group of like are, are maybe at step three or four. Like they, they're they thinking, okay, soil is interesting. Agriculture has to change. Maybe I have to change slightly how I invest. And then slowly you get sucked into it. I think right. that some people that are listening. No, no what I'm talking about, but <laughs> it's definitely a much deeper process than simply moving a bit of capital from one agriculture practice to another, yeah. which is absolutely necessary. Let's remove as much as possible. But this goes a, a lot further, which one of the reasons why I like this so much because it, you have to start changing the way you think and operate to really imply or imply all the regenerative practices you want to, like you cannot escape the deep philosophical questions almost. And which is amazing when you talk to farmers that are applying regenerative practices They're especially if they've been doing it for a while, they're a few of the most philosophical people you ever meet because they really thought about this stuff. They thought about emergence. They thought about, they see it every day. They thought about observing. They they see nature operating. And you cannot help but become very, very philosophical.
1: I can tell, though, that we haven't talked for a while because now you're using this term regenerative practices like it's a thing. That doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't work.
0: There's no such thing as a regenerative practice. I know, but I, I switched from saying regenerative agriculture, like... Just as there's no definition, which I keep pointing to your amazing article on the yeah. agriculture continuum. And I a farmers that are applying practices, in this case, building soil, but that's too long. So I say regenerative practices, which is also incomplete.
1: Why don't you say regenerative approaches? Regenerative approaches is better because when you say sure. practices, that just means the farming practices that are the best practices that yeah. RUBA does, which doesn't actually work because they're different in different places. But a regenerative approaches can actually be the mind and the principles and the decision methodology and all of that. And then they may also do some practices. But when you say regenerative practices, it makes everybody think there's a checklist of regenerative practices. I just got to do them and then I'm done, which is like the antithesis of I'm allergic to that idea.
0: I will try to pay attention to that. I, I'm trying to stop saying regenerative agriculture as like, okay, this is a regenerative farmer. Like that's the because yeah. it's I get really allergic when people say that and trying like there's not such a thing. You can be applying practices for the people that don't want to go too deep into the stuff, but you're right, approaches is a better is a better term.
1: At least in English. There's probably better words in all sorts of language, including the indigenous languages from all over the world that were doing regenerative agriculture, horticulture, regenerative lifeways for absolutely so many, you know, thousands and millions of years. But English is a kind of funny, tricky language. And so um, it's all the more important to be that much more focused on it. But that actually connects to a point that I was going to make just before you started saying practices again, which is you, what you were saying about how investors shift and how they can kind of change. And you were talking about these different steps and I laid it out in four levels. I think one of the key things to have that happen, and I'm going this direction because I think both you and I are working on this, is... Not just to have it be like an idea that you read an article and then go do, but to actually grow communities of, I was about to say practice, to to communities of practice. practice. I know,
0: I know. Approach. You didn't say approach. <laughs> told you.
1: So, you know, communities of practice, communities of integrity of people who are working together over time, who commit mm-hmm. to coming together to be working their mind, not just talking about practices, but noticing How do I think, how do I work disrupting that in a regenerative paradigm? That is so key for long-term change because it does take time. And I think it takes community in order to help evolve up those layers or step through those steps you're talking about. Do
0: you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle we have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, It's super interesting you bring it up because one of my, yeah, say one of my day jobs, so that's not true, I spend about a day a week at Tonic working with, with a lot of impact investors and we just launched a working group specifically on regenerative ag and food and It's going to have, I mean, we just launched it, so we don't know how long it's going to continue, but it's going to have that, at least we're planning to, continuous uh, touch points. And it's part of a lot of other work we're doing to basically take Impact Investors on our journey. And this is a group of Impact Investors that has a deep interest in soil and food. Some are new to the space, some are much more experienced and have made a number of investments, but they all have expressed the interest to make more investments. And we're going to do it together. We're going to share deal flow, due diligence. And looking at, we as Tonic are facilitating, we're not doing the investments or the diligence, but bringing our members together that have a deep interest in this specific topic and facilitate the connections, the learnings, mistakes, and everything else to slowly start moving more of their portfolios or they are moving more of their portfolios towards this. And of course we're gonna see a lot of different things and a lot of different levels of regeneration, a lot of different levels of approaches, and that's all fine. But it's also a very big internal work, which I think through doing deals and looking at things, you're gonna discover a lot of things about the internal work that actually needs to happen on the almost in the back end.
1: Yeah, totally. And in a similar vein, you know, my work at How Good is working primarily in the food system, with agriculture, with supply, and with some of the largest companies in the world. And so I have recently launched a regenerative supply innovation working group because so many companies, both, you know, really cool, tiny startups and small but established players. And then some of the really largest companies in the world have said, we want to do regenerative agriculture. We want regenerative supply.
0: But there isn't a lot out
1: there. And so, you know, just like we were talking about...
0: Where do we buy our ingredients? Where do we go to?
1: Exactly. The demand is growing much faster than the supply. And so I just launched an invite-only community and asked people to commit for a full year to come together and work on supply in this innovation working group format that we do using regenerative business technology. So it's not, you know, the same kind of multi-stakeholder, complex, lowest common denominator approach that is so prevalent. There's lots of examples out there. Some of them doing really great work. But this is a, a regenerative business way of thinking. But we're going to have this group It's actually ending up being about 30 different companies from the largest to the smallest.
0: And are you looking then at specific ingredients or looking at their specific questions around ingredients or how would that shape?
1: Basically, the curriculum is designed around each company. So everybody's going to be bringing their own supply system. I'm not offering any content. I'm not going to tell you how to do rice regeneratively or sugar or monk fruit or apples. I'm not doing any of that content.
0: Apples you would know actually. But.
1: I, I do. Exactly. That's where it gets hard is I have to.
0: Just as a side note, if you don't know Ethan, he's an apple farmer as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'm going to be inviting. Processes and interactive work and sharing some of the regenerative thinking frameworks so that each of the companies will work on and develop their own supply system. Because if it were just so easy to say, Oh, well, here's a regenerative supplier. There's a regenerative supplier. Then I just do that and tell people where it is. The reality is the supply isn't out there. And so you have to work in a regenerative way with your company, with the procurement team, with the R and D team with the marketing team, and then actually develop your supply system to match your company, to match your products, to get it out to the marketplace. And that's not something you can do in a one-off workshop. That's something that needs a community of people thinking and figuring out how to do it over time.
0: And Walmart is part of that or you haven't sent the invite yet?
1: I can't say exactly who's participating in, in any of these fully super confidential invite only,
0: but still 40 players is a good amount. 30. I mean, that's uh, 30 players, but still huge and small players for sure. And there's, there's going to be an 80 20 rule, but that is a year, potentially a lot of change, which some of it they might have done by themselves. Anyway, it was not a way you run a control group, but I would be surprised if it didn't speed it up. Let's say if it doesn't like significantly cut down a lot of these things to make it very concrete very interesting
1: yeah and i think the commitment is key some people say oh can i just come and try it out i'm not sure if i'm going to get value out of it let me just come for one session i say no
0: you can't do that and they pay as well for the full year like it's yes yeah so it's a full education
1: you have to commit you've got skin in the game And you're going to, I say, you have to show up for all 12 sessions. They say, Oh, can I just swap out for a different person? Cause I can't make this. So I said, no, you can't do that because it's not like I'm delivering. I'm not giving you the knowledge. So that you can
0: watch the webinar recorded. No,
1: (laughs) Exactly. I'm developing you as an individual person in your capability to see systems and work towards regeneration and think in a regenerative way. And you have to show up and you have to do the exercise and you have to be thinking on it in order for that to happen. You can't just have somebody come in and get that and transfer it. It's like, It's actual human development. It's about how humans learn over time. And these are the people who are decision makers that will guide the work that these companies do.
0: Super, super cool. Very interesting.
1: So I can't say a lot about it, but I wanted to say a little bit about it and also just say, you know, this one is full and starting this week. But I think based on the interest, we'll do another one in six months or something like that. And so, yeah.
0: Another cohort. Yeah. uh, Very. So they should, if they want an invite, they should reach out to you. Exactly. Very good. And then what is Lattice? I mean, one of the reasons we're doing this check-in interview and there are always six million others, but one of the main reasons we connect often, but we connect to let's, let's do a check-in is Lattice and part of how good can you explain what it is and why it's such a game changer for the sector?
1: Yeah. I'm really excited about Lattice. This is an impact platform. It's software as a service that brings together basically the last 14 years of how goods research on global supply systems, agriculture, environment, human rights, labor risk, animal welfare and brings it all into one database and then puts it immediately into the hands of decision makers at primarily food producing companies. There's also health and beauty coming, but we've uh, one large health and beauty company has gotten exclusivity, so there won't be health and beauty available broadly for a while. But for food, you know, we're launched and getting it out there. So I think maybe for listeners who haven't heard about how good, I should just say a little bit there, and that'll give context for Lattice. Yeah. So how good is a tiny venture-backed startup that has built the world's largest database of product and ingredient sustainability? So we look at 127 individual different sustainability metrics. We have 33,000 different ingredients. Chemicals and materials in the database. So that's everything for food. It's everything for health and beauty. That's everything even for packaging. And then we've pulled over four hundred and fifty different data sets which are a huge array of things from, you know, life cycle assessment data to NGO reports to academic publications. We've pulled and centralized and harmonized all of this data so that we can rapidly assess any ingredient and any product in the industry. We've got a million products already in the database at the individual UPC level, thousands and thousands of...
0: Meaning this specific peanut butter and this specific... Exactly. Steak, olive oil. Steak,
1: This specific granola bar. Mostly
0: supermarket focused, right? That's the.
1: Exactly. So we have a million of those. Well, I mean, we how good started in small natural food and specialties. So we have a huge number of those really, you know, cutting edge products. But then we're also working with large players like Ajo Delhays, which has 2,000 stores in the U.S., 4,000 stores in Europe. And, you know, we have 95 or greater percent coverage of every single thing in their stores. So it is broad scale. But then we also are always keeping our eyes on on what's popping the cool, innovative brands that are out there and assessing those also. So for years, we've done this assessing individual products. But what happened was we realized we're gathering more data than the retailers themselves were using. And so then we thought, okay, somebody must be interested in this finer grain data in not just like, is this a great product for the world? Or is this just a good product for the world? But like how many kilograms of CO2 equivalents per kilogram of this material? How much water in a stressed area is being used? What is the specific labor risk and working conditions in the supply chain of all the 20 ingredients in this product? And so we partnered with Danone and developed this platform called Lattice that basically takes all of that information and puts it on the screen in front of you at the click of a button. So if you're a product developer and you're interested in a new ingredient, I don't know, sumac or acerola cherry or a monk fruit, but you don't know anything about it, your procurement team you know, is overloaded, doesn't have time to look into it, your sustainability team's working on the report, you got to get some information and make a decision about your product. You just click into lattice, you type in that ingredient, it pops up, and then you can get any one of these many, many different metrics and instantaneously understand them. But you don't have to have a degree in ecology or human rights or life cycle assessment in order to understand it because we use the spectrums. So just like you've been working on the regenerative agriculture spectrum, we use this concept of a spectrum from the most degenerative to the most regenerative And have a simple color scale between them and lay that across greenhouse gas emissions, water, biodiversity, soil health, labor risk, processing. So very quickly, without looking at any decimals or really having to know that much, you can see the colors and go, Oh shit, there's a red spot here. That's, you know, high water usage. Oh no, there's, you know, cocoa from West Africa. There's a high labor risk. So you can very quickly see. And then you can improve the product. So it's great for baselining, right? You could baseline an entire, you know, thousands of products, product portfolio in a matter of weeks and just have a, an actual baseline there. And then you can go into an individual product and can say, well, what if I changed out this almond? What if I changed out this apple instead of getting a conventional one from China? What if I got a regenerative one from Chile? Or what if I got a fair trade organic one from Ecuador? And then immediately it changes the metric. So you can see real time. You don't have to wait six months. You don't have to hire an outside consultant to check on it. You just make that change and boom, you can see how the
0: product improves. And how deep does it go in a sense like, okay, I'll I'll change the one from Chile to Ecuador, for instance. Is it... I don't think it is, but I'm asking, is it at a farm level in a sense? Because between farm and farm, obviously, there could be enormous differences. Neighbor and neighbor is, is a whole different game. Maybe not because of the labor risk and political risk. I mean, the risk, yes, the actual practices and approaches are different. How granular do you get with almonds or apples or in, uh, these ingredients as the difference could be whatever X.
1: We can get all the way down to farm
0: level. If the data is there, I think, yeah.
1: If the data is there.
0: It's not that you're going to Ecuador and say, okay, this farm is here and that farm.
1: That is not how goods work. But much of that data is available. And through our partners and through something that's happening more and more, which I want to talk a bit more about around supply, we're getting more and more detailed data down to the farm level. But the majority is not. The majority starts at these heuristic levels of granularity and industry averages. So our approach is we take and can use the most granular level of data that is available. So if you are a company and you know you're sourcing from this farm and you have soil tests and you have modeling from any of the other platforms, from Cool Farm Tool, from the SAI, from granular, from you know anything you have, we can take that very detailed data and put it into the system and then you can pop it up next to the industry average next to the state average, next to, you know, all the farms that are using organic certification in that region. So you can see these multiple layers of detail. One of the challenges that I think is out there in the world is that many people think you have to have that farm level data for every single point in your supply chain. And that's impossible. We just, nobody has that yet. And so then people are stuck. They stop and they say, well, we can never know all that. So we're not going to make any decisions. That is a, that's a waste of time. We don't have time for that in the world right now.
0: We need to clean up way faster and then get better over time.
1: Exactly. So we give you highly accurate directional information right from the starts.
0: Because if you swap like the worst two or three ingredients and you swap them for a lot better one, for sure, like your average score changes dramatically because it's on the worst ones where probably the most negative impact is. And not just the top one or two ingredients you use, and you're you're super happy about because they're already fair trade and organically certified and r o c et cetera et cetera
1: exactly, so we'll work with the whatever data is there, and then over time, like if you don't know anything about many times you know various companies that we have talked to. And work with, they don't actually know where their supply, they don't even know what country it's coming from, which is understandable because of the, you know, opacity and complexity of the global supply system.
0: So that's where you start. We
1: start there and we can actually, many times companies will come to us and say, you don't know where our sugar is coming from. We haven't told you that. And I say, well, yeah, so where's it coming from? They say, well, we don't know either, but let me go check with our suppliers. And we say, okay, before you go, let me tell you this. We think based on where you're manufacturing and the scale and what you're manufacturing, You are most likely sourcing that cane sugar from Dominican Republic and go ask your suppliers that. And then they'll come back and they'll say, how did you know that's where we were sourcing? Right. And that's the power of the heuristics that how good is built is even if you don't know, we actually probably do know where it's coming from and some details about how it's produced. And then over time, if you can get more details from your supplier or, you know, directly, then we can add that in and the, the system gets more and more precise but there's no excuses for not getting a look at it now and starting to make decisions in the right direction.
0: Yeah, you have to start mapping. Yeah, which just as as honestly as impact investors, there's no excuse now for not mapping your portfolio and have a good understanding of what you actually invested in. And there might be some nasty surprises and skeleton in the closet. You thought I'm really still part of that fossil fuel company, and how did I actually? And they probably have more damage than your amazing few angel investments into something solar, etc. can ever do. Like clean up, get to a good baseline, and start going deeper from there. But the cleaning up part, or getting into a good overview, like having an understanding of what you actually own. I know Lisa Pritzker always like actually good do a good research into what you own, and then start from there. But unless you know that, unless you know what kind of ingredients you're even buying and where they're from, you what. Where do you start going and improve from there? Very interesting.
1: And I'm sure one of the things your listeners are thinking about right now is, could you combine forces with what Kun just said and what Ethan was talking about and do how good software for investments? And I'm going to say yes, but don't email me about it right now because...
0: I saw a button on there for investors, actually. There's so
1: much interest and we are working on it. It's harder with investment portfolios than it is with food products because you know, so many funds, you can't see exactly what it is. Or even if you know what the funds are investing in, you can't see exactly where the holdings are. But we actually have some methodology. I've been working with some really cool folks thinking about this to build out some of the modeling for portfolios that would basically allow you to type in a ticker symbol and then see what the impact is in all of these different metrics. So that's on the way. It's not here yet.
0: The public side is probably easier because there's so much data on the private side is where it gets really, really complicated. It's what we see, at least internally, like we're mapping a lot of the portfolios of our members, which they share with us voluntarily, obviously. And it's really, really difficult to, and we're building some pieces. I will put a link in on Tonic Tracer. We're building some pieces of software on that. On both sides so basically let the investor declare why they made that investment both on the impact theme level and the scg level because it could be very very different and then go to the investment or the investment fund and ask the same thing like what are you tracking what are your metrics what are your kpis and hopefully if we do that enough times then we don't have to ask that fund again because they already mentioned it so we get a database with at least all the impact funds and let's say the larger direct deals etc that have declared what they are tracking are they tracking inequality? Are they tracking CO2? Are they tracking of their portfolio companies, of their company themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So not every single investor who is going to reach out again and ask, okay, are you tracking that? Can you please come back? Like, that needs to be, I wouldn't say centralized, but database somewhere. Because we need to know and pension funds need to know, investors need to know, and it needs to be tracked. And you will be surprised how much of it is tracked and how sometimes how little of it is tracked. Like, okay, just seeing the, the inequality data, like, How many female founders do you have in your fund? And many people have not even asked that question ever. And it's really, it starts with that question, like just asking it.
1: Well, and this can actually connect something to, which is the next level of Lattice. So my role is chief innovation officer. So we designed Lattice two years ago. It launched with Danone as a primary partner. There's a bunch of others that are coming online. There's also a number of other companies that are using the data that sits behind Lattice, even to you know, communicate publicly. So Chipotle a restaurant, fast casual, excellent restaurant here in the US with really high quality standards on its sourcing is also using the data behind it. And they're putting it on their receipts. So every time you buy a burrito or you buy a bowl, you actually get this, you know some numbers about the relative you know, amount less of CO2 that went into the atmosphere. And it's powered
0: by how good data? Yeah. It's powered
1: directly yeah. by how good data. So there's a lot more use cases of this. This is also something I see that's happening, not just how good is doing this, but that sort of information, insight on carbon footprint is going to be growing very, very, very quickly.
0: True Price did a pop-up shop in Amsterdam. Like, what does this coffee actually cost? And what does this... And they put like the real cost and then the actual climate cost plus social, et cetera. And I think there's a discount discount supermarket in Germany yeah. that has been communicating the real price, which you would never expect from a discount shop, but they have been communicating the real costs actually of your chocolate bar, of your bag of potatoes, of your, and I made quite some headlines. I will see if I can find a link. Yeah.
1: expect to see this, you know, growing significantly and how good has some other offerings that are about to launch in this space. But the thing that we're really heading towards that I'm now turning my attention onto is how do you build out the supplier side of our database so that when you find out, oh, a fair trade organic chocolate is actually going to score a lot better in the system. Well, what suppliers, what co-ops have fair trade organic chocolate at the scale that you need it to produce or, oh, you want, you know, a dry farm Spanish almond. Well, where do you actually get that? So now what we're building out and the first thing we're going to do, and the reason I'm mentioning it here is because, some of your listeners are from the production and supply side of things. We're not going to try to boil the ocean and put every single supplier in the world of every type of you know material that's out there. We're going to start with the regenerative supply. So anyone who's out there who's actually producing high quality or even heading toward transitional to regenerative, we're going to get you into the database first so that our partners, small brands and large brands can click in and say oh the supply yeah. exactly here this will make my product better but where do i get the supply here's a link to you know this supplier or that supplier that might actually have that available so that's the next thing i'm working on building is the supplier side of the database
0: super exciting we have to check in way more often than this and we have to be very conscious of your time because you have another call coming up and i want to ask the last question that i've been asking but i yes. never asked you is what if you would wake up tomorrow and you have a $1 billion. we mentioned it with bit with a Venture Studio, but what if we, you would have a $1 billion investment fund and you'll be free to invest it, whatever you like, what would that portfolio look like?
1: I think I would launch a Venture Studio for each major climate geographic zone in the world and have them centered in that place.
0: Mm-hmm. On a farm?
1: Yeah, probably on a farm. Like, one of the things about regenerative agriculture is that it is unique to each place and expresses the essence of each place. So I think, you know, starting one in each major geographic climactic zone would be a good, like a, be a Mediterranean one and a deep tropics one and a, you know, a, a, like cold tundra one, right? You'd have each of those. But then one of the things that those would be um, tasked with doing is understanding the different life sheds, not just watersheds. Watersheds is like a, it's the wrong way to think about it. It's separating out water from the rest of life.
0: But it's easy when a drop falls here and where does it go? I mean, people, it's a linear thing.
1: Right. Oftentimes it helps, but you need to see a whole life shed, the economic, historical, cultural, biological, ecological, spiritual, psychological, you know, entity of, of life. So we'd find those different life sheds all over the world and support each of them to be growing investment communities within them. So the most powerful thing I would do with investment is multiply the investment by growing these life-shed-centric investment communities. And I read a little bit about this in the article we talked about. Okay, that's one thing. The other approach, and I wouldn't, I don't think I'd spend any money on the government side of things, on policy. A lot of people think policy is a good idea. I agree. I think it's really important. It's not for
0: me. I'm going to take a, a business route. A lot of people are doing it. I think if you look at the, the f- my decision-making framework or my, it's of uh, effective altruism, etc., is it neglected? Is it, is I think the most crucial question and policy, I'm very happy. Other people are doing it. Let's say a lot yeah. of people decide why you're not interviewing people of the European union, etc. it's just not for me. And, and I think, luckily a lot of attention is going there, but sorry, go ahead.
1: I, th- well, I think you and I both have a bias for action. And so we see that the investment space and the business space are places where action can happen quickly without getting a lot of... And so that's actually where I would put some of the rest of that billion dollars is use it as an instrument to get deep connection with the CEOs and boards of the major companies in the world that have to do with agriculture. Because when you can get CEO and board level thinking change... On not just like, oh, we should do regenerative agriculture, but as we discussed earlier, you know, I want those people committing to an amount of time in a room each month together
0: with their top people,
1: regenerating how they think about agriculture, about supply, about investment, because that is what will quickly shift the whole. I mean, you can look at, I think Paul Pullman, you know, from Unilever now has something that is basically Aiming to do this, I wouldn't do it exactly the same way, and it would be more from a regenerative place. But something along those lines, I think, would be a really, really key. And then I probably invest. There's a bunch of just purely to make money off that billion. There's a whole bunch of I think really cool farmland investments that are more mature that we don't need as much research, we don't need as much you know venture development. But there are perennial cropping systems in each climate in the world. And I would do, you know, a regenerative real estate model similar to, you know, or along the lines of what Paul at SLM and some of the other great folks that you've interviewed in the funds are doing. But there's a couple tweaks towards perennial crops that I would focus on and then also continue to think about the investment value of the real estate itself and finding ways to monetize that as well as the production. Because I never really want to be trying to pull investment money off of farmers back, but I think there's some tested ways we could get a lot. So that that would be probably like 50%, 30%, 20% I think is how to do
0: that. So if anybody has a million laying around, you can also definitely reach out to Ethan uh, and he'll be a he fund manager tomorrow morning. <laughs> It'll be a lot of fun, yeah. <laughs> no, I said, I like the question because, I mean, you're used to think about numbers and larger numbers, but some people in the space are not. And I love that decision-making where, okay, what would you focus on because you cannot do everything and a billion is large enough to sort of say, okay, a million doesn't really matter. So I really need some kind of structure and decision-making framework and focus to do this. Otherwise, it just I would just get drowned. And it triggers interesting thoughts. It's not because it's a billion, it could be a hundred billion, it could be a hundred million, it doesn't really matter. It just needs to be a large amount yeah. enough to trigger somebody to say, okay, I need some kind of prioritization. Otherwise, I, I just get lost. And with that, I think we're we're done for this session. We're we're going to be back soon, I think. I don't think uh, it should last. Uh, it should be as long as we did last time. I think it's almost a year. Yeah. Uh, at the end of last year when we did the map, actually. That was yeah. nice when we did yeah. the map launch. So we we should check in around that again. Any last thoughts for this version?
1: I do have one last thought that's in a different direction than we've touched most of this, but I'll just put it out there. There's been criticism towards regenerative agriculture recently.
0: Especially after Grand came along, yeah.
1: And a whole bunch of things. And, and I think for good reason, there's been some questions... About the integrity and the sort of whitewashed nature of regenerative agriculture, basically taking the work of Black and Indigenous and Latino and Asian farmers and people of color all over the world who have been doing incredible agriculture practices and approaches and lifeways for a
0: really long time. And yeah, we had Chris Newman on the show a few weeks ago, which was great. Yeah,
1: I think this is a really cool place to uh, for everyone to explore. How Good's Innovation Series is following this thread. We have a number of amazing indigenous black uh, people of color, you know, farmers and people from all over the food system speaking on this, especially from an angle of biodiversity and cultural diversity. And so those are free. That's you know How Good's Innovation Series online. You can find that. We can put that in the show notes. But then also just digging into that realm and understanding what is the indigenous ancestry of each crop. Of each product of each place that you're in and just going on a, a not triggered, a not defensive, a not uh, don't do white fragility and just really like dig into it and grieve and learn and there's so much beauty there and there's so much healing that can come, but not if I as a white person coming in as a savior, as a missionary. Right with your, my mission-based business.
0: Now we found a solution. Everybody listen. Yeah. yeah
1: so that's not going to work, and I think there's a lot of really good learning to happen for everybody.
0: And there are a lot of very interesting people doing stuff. Instagram is the best place to find them. I have to say, it's fascinating.
1: So I think there's some great work there, and go check that out. Along with investing billions of dollars and transforming global supply, it's been great to be on again, Kuhn.
0: Super. I very much looking forward to checking in soon again and have a great day. If you would like to learn more on how to put money to work in regenerative food and agriculture, find our video course on investing in course. This course will teach you to understand the opportunities to get to know the main players, to learn about the main trends and how to evaluate a new investment opportunity, like what kind of questions to ask. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculturecom course. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three. If this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash egg or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.